Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. We are into the second part of the basics of effective Christian living. If you want to live Christ-likeness out, you will obey these ten essentials to basic Christianity. And so we looked at five of them last week. We're going to look at five more today. But all the evidence that we need to prove that we are living in a post-Christian world was provided for us this last Tuesday. And I'm not saying that it was necessarily in the presidential election, although either choice would have been a reality of a post-Christian world. And so, uh, as I'm, as we're talking about this, I want to bring up some other issues across the nation on ballots in small towns and large cities. Some of them uh, were uh, votes which approved homosexual marriage in states which had never done so before. Two of them, to be precise. There were two votes in communities within our own state which were barely rejected, but if accepted, would have been would have made speaking out against homosexuality a crime, even for a church. You see where we are at as a country. We are not a Christian world. If there was any time in the modern era where we needed the basics of effective Christian living, it is now. And so as we move through this passage... We must recognize a few things. For too long, we have been, as a group of believers, as the church in this country, we have been a group of people fighting a battle that we were never intended to fight. It is time to get back to the basic essentials of effective Christian living. Christ did not call us to go be a political movement. As such, we have failed because we were not designed to be one. Christ did not call us to be uh, really to make a worldwide change. That was not the goal of Christianity, even though many Christians have assumed that it is. You see, the purpose of Christianity is that we may bring with us those whom the Lord has prepared so that they might spend eternity with us and with Him in heaven. And so we are to live basic these basic essentials of Christian living, of effective Christian living. And it is only in faithful practice of these things that we will have the impact on our community for the sake of Christ. You see, that is why we are designed, or that is what we are designed for. That is what we should be doing, is impacting our community for Christ. If we happen to impact the world along the way, praise God. However, if we do not impact the world, if we do not cause them to believe in our moral issues, then praise God. As long as we have done our job, our responsibility, of being effective Christians in the setting in which we find ourselves. And so that is where we are going this morning. The idea I want us to focus in on is the basic essentials of effective Christian living will cause continued growth and maturity in Christ and in the church body. One goes to the other. If we grow in Christ, the church body will grow as well. As we begin to consider these things, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, as we have reflected upon this last week, we recognize In so many ways, we are truly in a post-Christian world. Uh, If that had not been blatantly clear to us before, it is stunningly obvious now. Lord, as we consider these issues, we recognize that for too long we have fought these battles of of moral issues rather than fighting the spiritual battle of salvation. I pray that we would no longer fall into that uh, slippery slope, that trap, the cleverly devised scheme of Satan's. Instead, that we would recognize what is basic, effective Christian living and do it. Whether it agrees with the world or whether it disagrees with the world, may the world not be our standard. 
May the people around us not be our standard any longer. Instead, may Christ be our standard. May our authority come from your word and only from your word. And may each one of us be active and and ready to use your word, ready to say, thus says the Lord. And may that be not only the words out of our mouth, but our heartbeat, our desire as Christians. And as such, we do pray for many to come to know you as Savior. As we think of this spark for missions, we think of all of those in our community that are not worshiping today because they do not know you as Savior. I pray that we would be effective in reaching out to them as we reach out to the world and the communities that surround us with the gospel message, not with social issues, not with moral issues, but with the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Lord, we give you the glory and the honor for it today. Give me the words to speak as we move through these five essentials. May each one of our hearts be impacted and changed because of it. Lord, we love you and thank you for your word, for the power, the authority that is found therein. And may we be active in using it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. This morning... Uh, we want to remind ourselves of the first five. There are ten basic essentials of Christian living, and we've seen five of them. The first five are love, devotion, diligence, perseverance, and contribution. That's the first five basics of essential Christian living. And as we recognize that, we recognize that primarily those are focused on the body of Christ. There is a slight shift because the five we look at today are primarily focused on those who are not believers. Although there is some overlap in both of them, but today we're primarily looking at those outside the church. How do we relate to them in light of who Christ is, in light of who we are in Christ? And so in as we move through that, we recognize the first five, love, devotion, diligence, perseverance, and contribution, all towards the saints. Now these next five. These next five basics of effective Christian living are, first, be a blessing. Be a blessing. Second, share in joy and in sorrow. Third, be humble. Be humble. This is the fourth time, by the way, in two chapters that Paul has said, be humble. You think he's trying to establish a point with you and I? Be humble. Be humble. Uh, That's the third one, actually. Fourth one, be at peace. Be at peace. Be at peace with all men. And fifth, overcome with good. Be overcomers. Be overcomers with good. So begin with me in verse 14 of chapter 12. And the scripture says this. Having already read it this morning, let's dive right in. Verse 14 says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. So the first basic that we are going to look at this morning is be a blessing. Be a blessing to those who persecute you. Now, this essential is extremely difficult. When you consider what Paul has just said, Paul is not saying in this verse to be a blessing to those who are believers. He's saying be a blessing to those who persecute you. Those who cause harm. Those who The word for persecute is, is to follow after and to hinder your way. That is what persecution means. They're following after. They're, they're trying to grab hold of you. This is not an easy task. This is not an easy essential. You can't just say, yep, chalk that one off. Because you and I have truly not understood persecution. We must understand the audience Paul is writing to. Why are these Christians in Rome? Because they got kicked out of Jerusalem. Because they've been spread throughout all of the world, moving to Rome, moving to other places in the known world, because of persecution. They've lost everything they own. They've been kicked out of their homes. They've, some of them have 
been disconnected from their family. Some have even lost their lives as Stephen. And Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Bless those who have caused so much harm to you. Likewise, he is not saying do good things to those who mistreat you. It's not, not one of those things to, oh, that's, I'll give you some good things. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying do good things. He's saying bless them for those who mistreat you. He is paraphrasing Christ in Luke chapter 6. So keep your finger here. Turn back to Luke chapter 6. Because Christ says this in Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, 27 and 28. And we find ourselves here in uh, Christ's sermon, this great sermon, verse 20, uh, chapter 6, verse 27 and 28. Scripture says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. You see, Christ is using the same word for love that Paul used in verse 9 of chapter 12 in Romans. Remember last week. Uh, remember what it said. Verse 9 says this, let love be without hypocrisy. Christ says, this is your standard of blessing those who persecute you. That's what Christ says in Luke chapter 6. Love your enemies. In other words, agape love them. Sacrifice for them as Christ sacrificed for us. Christ is using the same word. We are to agape love those who persecute us. This is not a lighthearted response. This is not, oh, I just won't talk bad about them. This goes well beyond. Anyone who believes that this is for the weak ought to try it once. Bless those who persecute you. You see, many view these ten basic essentials of Christian living, of effective Christian living, as weak. As something that only the the weak and the vulnerable will do. But have you ever tried to bless those who persecute you? That is not a weak thing. Paul is calling for strong Christian response. It is, this is quite possibly the hardest of all ten essentials. To bless those who persecute you. To do so, we are to be motivated by a love which transcends our natural selfish ambitions. Agape love. If you are responding out of your natural sinful self, you did not bless those who persecuted you. If you are responding out of anything less than a transformed mind, you did not bless those who persecuted you. We, we demonstrate love to them by blessing them. So we need to understand what blessing is. Because it's not just to do good. Blessing means to ask God to bestow a divine favor upon them. Do you know who illustrated this perfectly? Even though he was a sinner? Stephen, as he is being stoned, bless those who persecute you. And Stephen said, Lord, forgive them. He was asking, he was pleading with the Lord to bestow a divine favor upon those who persecuted him. Can you do that? That is not weak. I don't know if I can do that. That is effective Christian living. We are to bless them, to ask God to bestow a divine favor upon them in the midst of persecution. If we understand that we used to be enemies of the cross, if we understand that we used to be those who were 
willingly removed from God by our own desire, that in that condition we were saved, then how can we do anything less? While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. You see, this all builds on the theology of the first 11 chapters. If you do not have the theology, you cannot ask a blessing on those who persecute you. If we understand what we were, as they are in the moment of their persecution, what do you suppose the divine favor that we ask of God to bestow on them is? If you are where you're at, knowing Christ as Savior, and you want to bestow a spiritual blessing upon them, what would you ask for their blessing to be? Salvation. Salvation. Bless those who persecute you. Bless them. Ask God to bestow a divine favor upon them. Paul continues and he says, uh, also, be a blessing to those who persecute and do not curse them. Do not curse them. Natural man's action is to curse those who bring harm and persecution against them, both in word as well as in action. This is not just a, a speaking cursings to them. This is in word and in action. You uh, declare them to be a, away from you. Paul reveals that the believer is not to curse them, but to bless them. It takes a weak man to curse an enemy. Have you ever noticed that? It takes a weak man to curse an enemy. Anyone and everyone has the capacity to do this, to curse an enemy. Natural man, in his weakest sense, has the ability to curse an enemy. But it takes divine strength to bless them. It takes divine strength to bless them. Motivated by love, motivated by an understanding that the Christian is the only one with that divine strength to do so in a pure heart, you are to bless those who persecute you and do not curse. Paul is not speaking to us directly. He is speaking with people who have fled their homes, their businesses, their families. People who have lost every earthly thing that was dear to them. He says, when you think of those faces who burst in your door at two in the morning, bless them. Do not curse them. Bless them. I tell you what, these essentials are not easy, are they? They're not intended to be. The transformation from earthly life into Christ's likeness is difficult. It is difficult. It is hard. And so these are not for the faint of heart. First, be a blessing. Second, share in joy and sorrow. Verse 15. 15 says this, it's a short verse. It says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. First, we are to rejoice. Let's talk with uh, the joy first. We are to rejoice, to be happy with those uh, with whom are those who are rejoicing. And there's a bit of a play on words here as we understand sharing in joy and sorrow as Paul uses the same process in both accounts. He is saying, you are to express Joy, and you are to express sorrow to those who are enduring rejoicing and enduring sorrow. In other words, those whose lifestyle at the moment is totally wrapped up, you are to partake with them in their lifestyle. When they rejoice, rejoice with them. When they weep, weep with them. When they are sorrowful, be sorrowful with them. You see, uh, we are to have a genuine response to those who, in the event of joy or sorrow, we are partaking with them. For them it is life, for us it is an action. This means that we are to be vulnerable again. 
But we see this pattern for us by Christ who had compassion. He would weep with those who weep. He prayed for those who are weak, including himself. He acted in response to the emotional needs of those around them. We see this continually lived out. He had compassion on the blind man. He had compassion on the woman at the well. He wept with Lazarus' family. You see, Jesus responds emotionally to those around him who are not followers of his. So we are to be vulnerable. We are to allow Christ to use these emotions in our life to impact those hearts around us. So we are to rejoice. Then we are to weep. We are to weep. Because of man's sin in Genesis chapter 3 and the continued infliction of the consequences of sin today, there will be weeping. And we've all experienced it. We've all experienced those tears, those weepings. This is when the Christian's essentials are the least attacked and the most appreciated. When you live out Christian life, you will be attacked because you are different. But who are they going to call when they need someone to weep with? The one who's been living out the Christian essentials. Weep with those who weep. The tragic loss of a loved one. The loss of a job. A failing marriage. In times like these, weep with those who weep. Your biggest mistake is to try to fix it. Don't fix it. He doesn't say rejoice with those who rejoice and fix those who weep. (laughs) He doesn't say that. He says weep with those who weep. Shed tears for them. Show compassion. And it's not just superficial. Don't be this superficial, bubbly personality. Weep when they need to be wept with. And that is a difficult thing. It is not time for a grand theology lesson. It's not time to say, well, now if you wouldn't have sinned here, you wouldn't have had this problem. No, it's not time for a grand theology lesson. Show compassion. Faithfully share the Word of God in a compassionate way. You can teach them theology, just do it in a compassionate way. The basis for belief and growth can come later. Weep with them. Share the love of Christ with them. Share in sorrow and joy. Be humble. Be humble, verse 16. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. You see, this is the fourth time in two chapters that Paul turns his attention back to our selfish pride, and he narrows the focus. He's been talking mostly at those at large, and now he narrows it down for just a sentence to the church. Specifically, but I think he is also has in mind that we are not different from the world around us except through Christ. And so if we understand where we came from and where we are going, then that will help us minister to those around about us and practice these Christian essentials. See, we are to be humble when we view others. When we view others. And notice what he says here at the beginning of verse 16. He says, be of the same mind toward one another. This means to have equal regard for one another. To recognize that they have the value that you have. To recognize that their value is the same as your own. Feelings of superiority are neither realistic, nor are they appropriate for those who owe it all to God's grace. If you understand the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, you understand that it is only by the grace of God that you are a believer in Jesus Christ. 
It is only by the grace of God that you are growing in Christ. And it most definitely is only by the grace of God that you will spend eternity with Him in heaven as a believer. And if that is true, how dare you look down on those who are in this room with you and those who are outside of this room, who live in this community with you. Be of the same regard for one another. Recognize that they are no different than you and you could be where they're at except by the grace of God. We are not to be partial in the body of Christ. And there is equal value and purpose, each within the body of Christ. And James warns against this in James chapter 2. So keep your finger here. Turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Scripture says, My brethren... Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and you say, sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you can stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? You see, this is the same thing that Paul is speaking of. I'm going to keep your finger here in James because I think we're going to return if we have time. Uh, back to James for just a moment. But if we are partial in the body of Christ, that means you are dividing. You are not having equal regard for each other as human beings. You say to the rich man who comes in, uh, you know what, come over here. This is the best seat in the house. And you go, oh yeah, uh, poor man, why don't you go, there's a corner. Go stand in the corner. We don't want you sitting on the pews. Because um, you might leave filth. Just, just sit over there in the corner. You see, whether we do that in the church service or we do that in our conversations with those in the world around us, do you know who notices? The world around us. And they ask the question, where is the Christians? And they ask, why are they being partial to the rich man? And they're looking down on the poor man. We should have equal regard for one another. Feelings of superiority are neither realistic nor are they appropriate for those who owe everything to God's grace. And you and I owe everything to God's grace. So that is in viewing of others. What about ourselves? What about ourselves? Back in Romans chapter 12. Keep your finger there in James because we're, we're going to return in just a moment. Viewing ourselves. And Paul says here in the middle of verse 16, he says, do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. In regards to ourselves, we should not be high-minded. That's what he means by having uh, this uh, wise in our own estimation or haughty mind. Both, both terms are similar, but especially haughty in mind. To be high-minded, established prideful thinking as being conceited. As illustration, Paul does as James does, and he uses the lowly in order to base our evaluation. Turn back to James chapter 2. Here's our evaluation, verse 3. And you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and you say, sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit down by my footstool. You see, Paul, James is using the distinction of the lowly, and Paul uses the distinction of the lowly. The lowly in James' example are those who are poor. To help us understand this, MacArthur says this, The idea is not that we should avoid association 
with those in high positions of wealth or influence. But as far as our service to them is concerned, we typically have more obligation to associate with the lowly. Not because they are more important, but because they are more needy. The point that Paul is making is that there is no elite element within the church. There is no elitism in the church. There is no upper crust of society in the church. Nor should there ever be. If there is a church that there is an upper crust, that is a church you must leave. Because there is no such position in Christ. The point that Paul is making is that there is a no elite element within the church. The second element in regards to ourselves is that we should not be wise in our own estimation. And again, MacArthur helps us out here. He says, a conceited, self-promoting Christian is a serious contradiction. A conceited, self-promoting Christian is a serious contradiction. You cannot be both. You cannot be both. Every believer should be humbly submissive to the will of God found in the Word of God, having no confidence in himself or of his own wisdom and talent. And sure, there should be no social, no social hierarchy in the church. Neither should there be an intellectual hierarchy. There are no castes of any sort in the body of Christ. None. We must not be wise in our own estimation in any regard, thinking we are in any way superior to another fellow believer. What an amazing statement. There is no place for a conceited Christian. It's an oxymoron. can't be both. Either you're walking and growing in Christ, or you're conceited. can't be both. You cannot have both aspects. So we recognize that we are to be humble. Then we are to be at peace. And again, we return to this very difficult aspect in which we started. Verses 17. Start, let's start at verse 17. Scripture says, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Oh man, doesn't this one hit you in the heart? That one hurts. Wait a minute. I've got to get even. If I don't get even, they're going to get ahead. And if they get ahead, that's not good. I want to be ahead. So at least I've got to be even. You see, this is the, a world's mindset. This is a very a secular understanding. And the first thing Paul says is never repay evil. And this takes us all the way back to verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. You see, we are not to curse those who persecute us. And therefore, we... Therefore, because we are different, we should not seek revenge. should not seek revenge. In a way, Paul is beginning to set up chapter 13 as the believers are to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Oh man, that's going to be tough after this election. I'm not looking forward to preaching next week's message. So, in light of that, I'm not going to be here next week. Really, I'm not. I'm taking vacation. But I'll come back and preach... Romans 13 when I get back. <laughs> but as we consider... <laughs> that's more funny to myself, I think. <clears throat> as we consider what Paul is doing, uh, Paul is beginning to set the stage for chapter 13. He's beginning to help us understand that we are to be in subjection even to those things that we do not want to be subjection to as long as they do not violate the truth of the Word of God. But in setting that up, he says, never repay evil for evil. 
As such, we are to respect what is right in the sight of all men. Appealing to their conscience and their moral code that God has written on their conscience, the believer should do what is right. Notice what he says there, verse 7 and verse uh, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Be at peace. And there at the end of verse 17, respect what is right in the sight of all men. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Now you say, how in an ungodly world can I do what is right in front of all men? You know what that means? You have a higher standard than everybody else in this world. You recognize that what you do outside these doors and inside these doors is a higher standard because of Christ's likeness than anyone else lives by. But there's also an appeal. And the appeal is that you understand that on their conscience, a moral code has been written. Romans chapter 1. You understand the theology of Romans chapter 1. You say, we know that there is right and wrong, therefore we understand that man has a moral code written on his heart and his life. As we understand this, we recognize that you and I should act appropriately in all situations. You heard the news this week, the head of the CIA has had to resign because of an extramarital affair that should never be named among a Christian. You've Heard no doubt of pastors who have left because of uh, their churches, because of homosexual uh, misconduct, because of sexual misconduct. That should never be named among the church. Do you know why? Because you and I recognize that even the world understands that to be wrong. How dare we engage in it? How dare we engage in it? You see, the reality is that we are to do what is right in the sight of all men, appealing to their conscience and the moral code that God has written on their conscience. The believer should always do what is right. And this includes obedience to civil authorities as far as it does not violate the Word of God. That means that some of your rights could be taken away. That means that some of your freedoms could be taken away, and yet you still are subject to the governing authorities. That is not a popular message. That's why I'm not looking forward to preaching it in two weeks. You see, we recognize that we are to be obedient because the world looks at us and says, what is different about them? What is it that is different about the believer? What is it that they have that I do not have? And you should show it in the essentials of basic Christian living. These are basics. These are not asking for you to be some super Christian. These are basics. These are the elementary principles of the faith. And yet we're struggling with them. The next one, or rather never repay evil for evil. And then he says, strive towards peace. Verse 18, if possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. You see, the reality is Paul understands that peace is not a one-sided relationship. Peace takes every side to be involved. It takes everyone to be at peace. However, as far as it depends upon you, you be at peace. You go the extra mile to be at peace. Our responsibility is to make sure that our side of the relationship is right, that our inner desire is genuine, to be at peace with all men. Even the meanest and the most undeserving, we should seek to be at peace with them. Short of compromising God's truth and standards, we should be willing to go to great lengths to build peaceful bridges to those who hate us and seek to harm us. 
But Paul does not say that we lie down. He says, as far as it depends on you, be at peace. When they cross that line, enough is enough. What is that line? Do you know where the line's at? Can you say, in this specific situation, thus says the Lord? Because if you cannot say, in a specific situation, thus says the Lord, they've beaten you because your authority's gone. But if you take it out of context and you say, well, you can't do that because this says the Lord. No, that's wrong too. You've lost the authority because you became the authority. We should understand the Word of God. We should faithfully practice it so that we know where the line is, so that we can be at peace with all men, knowing where we must say, enough is enough, thus says the Lord. And when we get to that point, then we recognize that we have done what we can do. And peace has been accomplished as far as it depended upon us. But then comes the hard one, as if that wasn't hard enough. Leave revenge to the Lord. Leave revenge to the Lord, verses 19 and 20. It says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now this verse 20 is an interesting one because it has been so misunderstood. It has been so misguided. It's like, yes, I finally get with a heap coals on his head. That sounds like fun. <laughs> that is not what Paul is saying. That is not what we need to understand from that verse. What he is saying is, let's start back at verse 19. This is a verse of tremendous promise, but it is completely countercultural. In our natural self, we want to seek revenge. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to take what I can. I've got control over this part of your life. I'm going to take and choke you to death with it. That is our natural sinful desire. We want immediate justice and failure to bring it is seen as weak in our culture. It is seen as uh, a lamb being led to the slaughter. It is seen as someone who does not know what they can do to accomplish it, and so you just lay down. But Paul reiterates Deuteronomy 32-35 when he says, Vengeance is the Lord's. You see, the Christian is peaceful because he knows eventually you're going to get it. And you're going to get it beyond anything I could give it to you. Because you're going to get it from the one who is just. You're going to get it from the one who is holy. So I'm going to ask a blessing from the Lord that you are saved from the wrath to come. See the motivation? It's completely different. It's completely different than I'm going to attack you because you attack me. Instead, you're saying you are attacking the Lord. I'm going to pray that you come to know Christ the Savior so that you can be spared from what's coming because I know that it is not pretty. Total different heart's desire. That is agape love. That is loving as Christ loved us. As believers, we rest in the reality that those who have committed great and grievous crimes against us will face judgment. The biblical example of this is the martyrs of the tribulation, in the book of Revelation, who cry out to the Lord, crying out for Him to bring vengeance for their blood. You know what God does? He brings vengeance for the blood of the martyrs. It is not pretty. And as Christians, we should recognize that we ought to leave it to the Lord because He can do a better job of it than you and I can. And he will do a full and complete job of it. The promise is 
that they will get what is coming to them. For a judge who knows the thoughts, the intentions, and the heart of every man. If a wrong has been done to us, no matter how serious and harmful it may be, we are never qualified for, nor do we have the right to render punishment for the offense ourselves. We are to leave that to the wrath of God. That is for the wrath of God to deal with. And he will do a better job than you and I ever could have. So, be at peace. Leave revenge to the Lord. Never pay evil for evil. Strive towards peace. Overcome. Be overcomers. Be overcomers with good. Never return, or rather return, return evil with good. Look at verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And I also want to look back here at verse 20. It says, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Return evil with good. In verse 20, this is a direct quote of Proverbs 25, 21 and following. Paul reveals that the purpose for and the command to not stop only at not repaying evil. We are not just to stop at saying, you know, okay, fine. You hit me. I want to hit you back, but I'm not going to. So therefore, I've done my Christian duty walking off. Paul says, no, you didn't go far enough. You didn't do what you were supposed to do as a Christian. You see, you're supposed to return evil with good. We are to take it a step further and to do good to those who do evil. If your enemy is in need, supply his need. Food, water, etc., supply it. And this, this portion of the verse is so widely misunderstood. The idea of heaping coals on someone's head may sound like revenge. Sound like fun revenge. But that is not what it is. We need to understand the custom. Commentator Tom Constable is going to help us understand the illustration. He says, heaping burning coals on his head figuratively describes doing good that results in the conviction and the shame of the enemy. The expression alludes to the old custom of carrying burning coals in a pan when one's fire went out at the home of the one who has come asking for the coals. Carrying the coals involves some danger, (laughs) obvious discomfort, and uneasiness for the person carrying them. Nevertheless, they were the evidence of a neighbor's love. Likewise, the person who receives good for evil feels uncomfortable because of the neighbor's love. This guilt may convict the wrongdoer of his or her way in a gentle manner. In other words, let me put it into some terms. Power goes out. You have a fireplace, your neighbor has a fireplace. They are very lousy at keeping their fire going. And in the morning, they have no matches to start their fire again. You have a nice roaring fire. You are comfortable in your home. You have been given something of the Lord that is warmth. And they come and say, I know uh, we've been fighting, but my family's freezing. I need something to start my fire. And you provide it for them. What an amazing picture of Christian love. And at the same time, an amazing picture of man's shame and guilt. Can you imagine the humility that it takes for him to cross that yard and ask you for fire? God says, vengeance is mine. Give opportunity for me to work in their hearts and their lives. Return evil with good. 
and then overcome evil. Overcome evil. And this one is in verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There's two sides to this. The first is that we should not be overcome by evil. This happens when we fail to exercise these essentials of effective Christianity, especially as it relates to revenge. But all of them, we could take all ten of them and recognize that failure to exercise these essentials will cause us to be subjected to being overcome by evil. You can be overrun by evil as a Christian. It is possible. In fact, it is uh, unfortunately common in our world today that believers are being overrun by evil. They are becoming evil. They seek revenge. They want their own ways. They are rising to the top of whatever echelon they want to be in. And yet, they have become evil along the way. So Paul says, do not be overcome by evil. It's worthless. It has no value. But he says this, overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. In verse 9, we were commanded to cling to what is good. Here in verse 21, we are told to overcome evil with good. In both cases, the word means that which is beneficial or useful. So in chapter nine or chapter twelve, verse nine, we are to cling to what is good. We are to abhor evil. We are to be horrified by evil. In the process, we cling to that which is useful. Do you know what is useful? Do you know this well enough to cling to it? Do you know this when someone comes up to you and says, "I believe that uh, we evolved from monkeys." And you say, thus says the Lord, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They come up to you and say, I believe that abortion is a woman's right to choose. Can you say, Psalm 139, thus says the Lord, that you were formed in the inward parts? Someone comes to you and says, I believe that homosexuality, that God uh, made me a homosexual. Can you say, thus says the Lord, Romans chapter 1, that you have exchanged... Uh, the worship of the Creator for the worship of that which is created. That you exchange the truth for a lie and have worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. Can you say, thus says the Lord? Because if you have not, if you cannot, you are not clinging to what is good. You are not clinging to what will cause you to be horrified by evil. You are not clinging to what you need to overcome evil with good. Not only should beneficial Christian living impact our lives as believers, but it should be carried out to the world around us. If you have established the firm biblical foundation in the Word of God, then you will understand, thus says the Lord. And you will obey, thus says the Lord. When the world seeks evil against us, we provide good to them. There's a progression. Chapter 12, 9 through 21. Paul progressed from a Christian's duty to his fellow believers to actions that would affect non-Christians as well. However, all that Paul wrote in chapter 12, 3 through 21 is directly applicable to your life within the body of Christ. The reality is sometimes the persecution comes from believers. The reality is the evil sometimes comes from believers. The reality is that sometimes the ones who's rejoicing and the ones who are weeping 
are believers. So these all are lived out within the church. Half of them are lived outside of the church. Lived out in the world around us as well. So how do you live? Are you practicing these ten basics to effective Christian living? Are you saying, I'm going to live on a wing and a prayer. Hope that God's going to get me there. That should not be the Christian's life. That should not be the Christian's motive. You will be applying these essentials within the body of Christ. And you ought to be applying these outside the body of Christ. These essentials should become a habit and faithfully and consistently relied upon in your life, in your character as a believer. If you miss them, if you do not apply them, you will fail to practice the basics of effective Christian living. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, as we bow our heads before you this morning, we recognize that there is tremendous benefit, tremendous passion in which your word has revealed the basics to effective Christian living. We recognize that it is only based upon the theology of the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. And I pray that if we do not understand the theology, that we would go back, spend our quality time in prayerful study of the theology, prayerful application of these ten basic essentials, and that your name would be glorified in all that we do. I pray that we would not be those uh, who are distraught at the way that the election has turned out. We would recognize that we know that it's going to happen this way because uh, we know that this age will end in, dis- in failure. That this dispensation will end in utter destruction. Recognizing that, we also recognize that the next dispensation will bring the promises revealed. And we give you such tremendous praise and glory because as the promises are revealed, so too is our security in our salvation. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We want to be Christians who are effective. We want to impact the world around us. And we praise you for the instruction of Paul. I pray that we would take these to heart, knowing that they are difficult. We would exercise them, practice them, and faithfully live them out, that your name would be glorified in all that we do and say. In your son's name we pray. Amen.